Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 29, Recapitulating the Garden. And in this episode, I would like to take the time to look at an incredibly familiar and yet very, very significant passage from the New Testament. The first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4, known as the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And I would like to explain the meaning of the rather strange word, recapitulation, why it is important to understand this term and what Jesus is actually doing in the wilderness temptation, both for us and ultimately for our salvation. And so I think this is a podcast that will stretch across a few of our episodes this particular discussion. I think you will find it incredibly valuable, and if you are open to what is actually being communicated in these passages, it will change the way you think about your own life and the life of the church and the Christians in it, as well as ultimately what Jesus has come to do um, for the world. And so I'm very excited to get into it. Let's, Let's jump right in. What I'd like to do at the beginning of this episode is simply to read for you the temptation of Jesus passage from Matthew chapter 4. I'm actually going to read the final two verses of Matthew 3 because they're very closely related to what Jesus is dealing with in the wilderness in chapter 4. And so in, in chapter 3 of Matthew verse 16, here's what it says. And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry." And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, this passage may be familiar to you. Maybe it isn't familiar. Um, This is my my middle child's favorite passage of Scripture, um, and it happens to be one of my favorites as well. Um, But the reason for me bringing it to your attention today, and while I've said I'm going to spend a few episodes on it, is, is certainly not to bore you. It's to recap and to sum up some of the very themes that I've been mentioning before, beginning with... Um, the all humanity understanding of the, the the reading of the Bible, as well as the covenant people understanding, and then these representative heads who happen to stand in for the people, as we looked at with Moses and with Aaron being representatives, being priests in relating to the people and relating to God as well. And so in in um, in Matthew chapter four, 
It's the ver- towards the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, and Jesus has gone out and has requested baptism by John the Baptist, and when he comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove, and a voice declares, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And all Jews listening to this declaration would have understood that the Son of God is actually a phrase that is used of Adam in the genealogy of Matthew. But the Son of God was also a phrase used to describe the role of the king. And um, um, King David was referred to as a, as a son of God, as was Solomon and any other king in Israel's history. And it was known and, and understood that the Messiah would himself also be a son of God. And so what is happening here, if you notice the, t- um, the first two of the three temptations of Jesus, it's the phrase son of God that the serpent is actually interested in challenging. And so wh- what is happening here is that, and, and the reason why I called this recapitulating the garden in the title is because the, the word recapitulation, it's a fun word. It is strange. We don't usually use this term in regular usage, um, but it just means repeating, uh, recapping, summing up, um, doing over again. And this word is really, really important because Jesus is actually getting ready to do this very thing. And what, what I want to do is I want to kind of do a flashback to, you know, 10, 12 episodes ago when we looked at particularly the fall in the garden. Um, I'm, I've called this recapitulating the garden because it is a repeat of something that already happened in mankind's story. Um, Adam and Eve, as you know, were in the garden, were tempted by the serpent to question the character of of the Lord God, were were encouraged and sold on the idea that to be rulers over the earth, to be in authority over the earth as stewards and as image bearers and as rulers was best done if they themselves got to determine good and evil. And to step out from under God's rule, is this the best way to rule? Is this the best way to be a king? Is this the best way to be a son of God, i.e. a representative of God? And all through the Old Testament, the sons of God, those who were called by that title, were in fact the kings because the kings were meant to rule over the people the way the Lord God ruled over them. And so to do that and to do that well was to be granted the title of son. And so when the serpent picks up on these themes, what you and I need to focus in on as we look at the temptation of Jesus is not simply to take our cues from Jesus. How did Jesus defeat temptation? Therefore, how can I defeat temptation? That is that is an okay desire, but it is seeking to make the Bible um, relevant to your own personal life before you understand its significance in the rest of the biblical story. And so as we looked at in episode 25, my discouragement from you doing that too quickly and making your own matters at hand, the determiner for relevance, instead of doing that too quickly, let's actually take a look at what Jesus is doing in the wilderness, what the serpent is attempting to do to Jesus in the wilderness to see if we can't figure out some other things that are going on first. And so what I want to do is remind you of the very first temptation, one that actually took place in a garden. Of course, this temptation of Jesus does not take place in a garden. It takes place in a wilderness. But the reason it does is because if you remember the end of Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve no longer decided that remaining under God's rule was the best way to enjoy his blessing, they were sent out 
from God's place into the wilderness. And from this point on, humanity is in a wilderness place apart from God. They want to be invited back into a garden-like state with him, but some things are going to need to happen. Jesus is going to need to do something on Satan's turf to reverse the, the fact that the wilderness places are the kinds of places no one wants to be. And the reason he has to do that is because when the tempter came the first time to humanity, he tempted them in a garden and they ended up gaining the wilderness because they failed the temptation. What you and I need to be understanding when we read Matthew 4 is that a declaration has just been given to another person that he is in fact a son of God, and it is that state, it is that position of authority granted to Jesus that the serpent is calling into question. Once again, tempting Jesus with the same set of temptations he once tempted mankind with in a perfect garden. And I want to show you what I mean. I'm going to read for you again Genesis 3 verse 6 because this is the best way to sum up what is taking place here in the wilderness with Jesus. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, there are three phrases that we look at in Genesis 3-6 that describe the reasons Eve chose to take from the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. First, that it was good for food. Second, that it was a delight to the eyes. And third, that the tree was to, that the fruit was to be desired to make one wise. And what I shared with you in previous episodes was that it was that third one in its totality that makes the temptation so bad is that Eve saw in that fruit and the taking of that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that that decision was the green light for her to be the sole determiner of what was good and evil. The, the way Genesis 3 puts it is that it was to be desired to make one wise. And of course, in the, the, the biblical outlook on things, mankind is and can be wise as they take their cues from the Lord. But in the fall, mankind desired to be wise by taking their cues from themselves. And so this ultimately is what happened. You have the, the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes, and it was desired to make one wise. If you fast forward all the way through the Bible near the very end and you come to 1 John chapter 2, John lists something for us that's really, really insightful. And he says in verse 15 of 1 John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, there's a lot that we could say about this particular passage as well, but all I wanted to draw your attention to was the way John describes the desires that are in the world. And he describes them as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
Some translations say the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And whichever translation you use, it really makes no difference. But there are three desires of the world, three ways of temptation, and they are the same three ways of temptation that the serpent first used on Eve and Adam in the garden. John says that there is a desires of the flesh, the flesh, the body, the things that you crave in your physical body, your physical appetites. These things could be something as simple as food or the need or desire for sex or the endorphin rush that you get when you exercise. I mean, we're, we're in a very exercise-driven society today, a dieting society where people want their bodies to look a certain way. So they, they eat food. You know, we have issues of people who desire to eat sweets all the time and have to force themselves not to do so. You have desires for food, desires for the flesh. But in Genesis chapter 3, the first thing that the woman saw was that the tree was good for food. So there is something drawing her to the need to have sustenance, to have something in her life that will bring satisfaction to the body. That's a feeling that she experiences in her body. But John tells us next that there's the desires of the eyes. Well, Genesis 3 flat out says, and when she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, there's something emotionally appealing. There's something that feels good on the inside when you stare at something aesthetically beautiful or emotionally satisfying or, or a reminder that you are a special person or that you are entering into something special and you appreciate it with your eyes. It's not that your body craves it so much. It's that you desire it and, and you know, the eyes are windows into the soul and what you stare at and long for and look at is really attempting to meet some internal need of, of where you find significance and where you find value and where you find worth. And then, of course, John lists as a final um, issue of the desire of the world, the pride of life. And it is looking to oneself to provide all that one needs. It's uh, accumulating material goods. It's accumulating wisdom. It's accumulating knowledge. It's saying within myself, I have all that it takes to be who I need to be. I don't need anyone. I can fly solo. And it is the belief in the self-sufficiency of one's ability to accumulate all the types of things he or she needs to be the type of person that both they want to be as well as the kind of person they think they should become. Well, this this is really the final issue for Eve in the garden, um, but in Genesis 3, this one is called that the woman saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. It is seeking wisdom apart from God. It's seeking authority and wealth and power and status apart from who God is and who he's made us to be. It's a willingness, an unwillingness rather, to take our cues from him and instead wants to make a name for ourselves. And so these are the same three kinds of temptations that the serpent offers the woman in the garden. And these are the three ways that John describes the desires of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The reason why I called this podcast episode recapitulating the garden is because Jesus as a human being and as a representative of all humanity 
is in fact in order to redeem man from the fall that he has created and to redeem mankind from the sinfulness that he is inseparably a part of, Jesus will first have to defeat sin in the way that it once defeated mankind. You remember when the Lord God told Cain in Genesis 4 that sin is crouching at its at his door, its desire is for Cain, but Cain must rule over it. While these same desires of the world, according to 1 John 2, are the kinds of things that seek to control you. They seek to rule over us. We are being called by God to rule over these things. And yet many, many, many of us, if we are really honest, know that we rarely ever do rule over these things. I will break a Lenten vow, which I'm on right now, not to eat sweets, and I will be tempted to break that every five minutes. For some reason, when I tell myself I'm not going to eat sweets for 40 days, all I want is sweets even more than I normally do. Like my bodily cravings for things that I can't have is a very, very difficult thing to push down. But what is happening here is that these desires, these things that robbed man kind from life in the garden with God are the same three temptations that the serpent uses all of the time in the world. And wouldn't you know it, without any creativity at all, he uses the exact same three desires of the world, the exact same three, good for food, delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, and attempts to use the same three temptations onto Jesus. Now, in order to fully understand what it is that Jesus is facing and why, we need to remember back to the original temptation. The first man and the first woman were encouraged or tempted by the enemy to rule over the world in the best possible way, and the best possible way was defined as you determining for yourself what is good and what is evil. You determine alone how best to rule. You alone determine how best to care for yourself, how best to provide for yourself. You alone determine that your needs need to be met before you concern yourself with anyone else's needs and that depending upon God to determine good and evil for you and depending upon God to care for you is not the best way to live. You need to take those matters into your own hands. Now, if we take all of those concepts that we looked at in Genesis 3 and watched Adam and Eve falter and ultimately fail and compare it to the kinds of things the serpent does with Jesus, we'll see something strikingly similar. We know that Jesus has just received the declaration from a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, if the son of God is the ultimate representative of God on the earth and therefore is in the, the place of a king or the place of a coming Messiah, then there is a very real temptation that could be offered for this Messiah, this king, this ruler to use his authority for his own benefit, to meet his own needs, to satisfy himself in whatever desires of the world he may choose to satisfy himself. And so as we looked at the lust of the flesh or the tree was good for food, notice the very first temptation that the enemy offers to Jesus. Jesus, while in the temptation, in the wilderness rather, being tempted, goes 40 days and 40 nights with no food. 
And at the end of that time, he becomes incredibly hungry. And so the very first temptation that the serpent offers him is, turn these stones into bread. Command these stones to become bread. If you really are the Son of God, which is debatable, Jesus, surely God wouldn't want you to starve. Now look at this. This is an attack on the body. This is a desire of the flesh. This is a, the tree was good for food. The temptation that Jesus is dealing with here is satisfy the needs of your physical body. Why? Well, if you're really the son of God, if you really have the position of authority that you claim you do, certainly God has a lot in store for you. He wouldn't want you to go without any food. And what does Jesus say to him? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But I mean, come on, Jesus, if you're really loved by your father and have all this work to do to save everyone, he wouldn't want you to eat, wouldn't he? And Jesus simply says, I will eat when the father says it is time for me to do so. My only food is not to simply feed my face. It's also to do the will of the father. And so Jesus walks into that same exact temptation and defeats it. Satan doesn't give up that easily, of course. And so he brings him to the pinnacle of the temple and he says to throw yourself down because surely God would protect him. Now we looked at in 1 John chapter 2 that you have the lust of the eyes or for Genesis chapter 3, this was called it when Eve saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes. And you remember I mentioned a moment ago that the eyes are a window to the soul. And so this one is a little bit different. This isn't saying so much feed your physical body, satisfy your physical appetites. It's almost as if the serpent is saying to Jesus, don't you want to know that you're deeply loved by God? That he would protect you from harm at any cost? How are you going to function with such a high calling on your life unless you know that he truly will protect you? He's appealing to Jesus's emotional stability. His view of himself in relation to what his father thinks of him. He is really dealing down inside him as a person, the things that he sets his eyes on, the things that he sets his sights on to satisfy himself. The serpent is drawing that out and is saying, look, the scriptures themselves say that he will not let you be hurt. He will not let you be defeated. Now, of course, in Psalm 91, which is where the serpent is quoting from, it is certainly does say that he will protect you and not let you strike your foot against a stone. But this tremendous promise of encouragement and hope is never meant to be thrown back into God's face as a requirement that God absolutely meets this or else he loses our trust. That's not what this passage was written for and yet that's precisely how the enemy uses it. And if I could make a short side note here, I would say this, be very wary of simply quoting a Bible verse as if doing so automatically means that you are speaking on God's behalf to a particular situation. Because the enemy knows perfectly well how to take a Bible verse, quote it word for word, and use it to be applied in the exact opposite way that it was meant to be taken. And he tries that very thing right here. And only then Jesus simply says to him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So then Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in exchange for worship. 
And here is an attack at the very heart of who Jesus is, at the heart of who we all are. He attacks him at the depths of our, of our person and, and our very spirits. Who or what will we choose to worship? Where will we place confidence at the center of our very being? Who will receive our loyalty, our allegiance, and our trust? Will Jesus' allegiance to and trust in his Father be enough, even if his plan for Jesus involves suffering and death? Worship me, Satan says, and I'll give you everything that's yours without the pain of the cross. This is ultimately what the serpent is inviting him into. He's inviting him into the desire to make one wise or the pride of life. Gaining what you want, all glory that is to be Jesus's, which Jesus rightfully owns and rightfully deserves, the serpent is offering him not what sounds to us like a fake temptation, as if Jesus would really worship Satan, quote-unquote. I know growing up I used to listen to this temptation and thought there's nothing in here that would appeal to anyone, much less Jesus. Like, is he really tempted here? But what I think is happening, based upon further exploration through the Gospel of Matthew, particularly when Peter chooses to rebuke Jesus after Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to suffer and be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and be killed and then three days rise from the dead. The disciples don't understand the rise from the dead part. All they hear is that he's going to suffer, be mistreated, and die. And Peter, if you well remember, begins to rebuke Jesus and tells him that that will never happen to him. What are Jesus's words to Peter in response? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have your mind set on the things of God, but on the things of man. And I think what Jesus is saying to Peter is he's recognizing the exact same temptation that Satan is offering Jesus here, point blank. I will offer you all the glory, all the grandeur, all the greatness, all the pride, all the attention, all the focus. And I won't make you go through the suffering, the ugliness, the rejection, the pain, and the death first. That's what Peter was trying to get Jesus to avoid, and Jesus will have none of it. And he has none of it with Satan either. And he simply turns to him and says, You shall worship the Lord your God in him only shall you serve. Matthew 4.11 then says these great five words, then the devil left him. And, and then it talks about angels coming and ministering to Jesus. And that wraps up the temptation. That wraps up this recapitulation of the garden. It's a scene that is set in such stark contrast that it reminds you and me that Jesus' working in this world is so much greater than we even realize. Because you had in a garden... A perfect relationship between a man and a woman in a perfect marriage of love and companionship in a garden where the presence of the Lord was perfectly there every day for them and with them. And it was into that setting that the serpent slithered in, made his offer, and convinced the first man and the woman to turn their backs on God. And yet Jesus is here to recapitulate that event. He has come not waiting for the serpent to slither into his presence, but Jesus, sent directly by the Holy Spirit, is led into the wilderness in order to be tempted. 
And so what you see in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is an incredibly active attack on the serpent's domain, an active attack into enemy territory. This is no longer sitting back and waiting for the enemy to come to him. Jesus is on the attack, attacking the serpent in his own territory. No longer where food is at the ready and shade is present and he's with the presence of God all the time, just like Adam and Eve were in the garden. Jesus is alone. He is hungry. He is tired. He has just been baptized and yet has is facing the entire rejection of the whole world in order to face the serpent to restore back to the world the possibility for re-entrance into the garden. Because if the, if the creation and then the fall involved you were in the garden and now you are cast into the wilderness, then the way redemption is going to happen is it's going to be in reverse and the wilderness is going to have to be addressed first so that the garden state can eventually be arrived at. And that's what you have happening in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. You have him recapitulating the garden temptation. You have him repeating or summing up or recapping the very things that the first man and the first woman endured, failed at, and Jesus comes out victorious on the other side. As the representative human being, he is in fact and has in fact restored dignity, restored authority to the first man and the first woman, And therefore, to all men and all women in this world, rightfully knowing how it is that they learn to rule well in the world. And it is by following the example that Jesus has set up for us, not just his example, but knowing that he has come and has undone the very damage that we once created. That is what he's doing in the wilderness. Jesus is standing in place as humanity's representative head doing for them what no one else has ever been able to do and showing us the way back to the Father, creating that opportunity for us, creating that path for us as he restores to us the position of image-bearing rulers over the creation that we originally were created to be. And so that's all the time we have for this episode. I'm just getting excited. I know next week we're going to talk about this temptation again, but from a slightly different angle. I hope you'll be eager to to wait for that episode. There are a few bonus episodes coming up in the next few weeks, one on Good Friday and then another one on Easter Sunday morning that I think you will appreciate and find of value. Thank you so much for those who are continuing to support this podcast and have offered me your encouragement, both financially as well as just in writing or in conversation. I appreciate those kinds of things. Love to hear more feedback from you. Would love for you to leave me a review or a rating on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these episodes on. But in the meantime, have a great week. We'll see you next time.